Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Love Crapsually, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in February 2018. In our first story, Betsy Emden can see her boyfriend's flaws but is willing to look past them until she doesn't have a choice. Okay. Dee dropped me at the United Terminal at Newark Airport. He unloaded my bag, gave me a hug and kiss, and I squeezed him back and inhaled his intoxicating scent, which was a custom blend of his own herbs and essential oils. He got back in his car and drove off, clinging tightly to the steering wheel as he got blended back into the hectic traffic around the airport. Uh, He did not look back. I checked in for my flight back to Traverse City uh, after a 10-day visit with Dee. He could be described as my boyfriend, although there were never any formal commitments. Dee had never and would never commit to anything or anyone. It was a long-distance relationship, me in Michigan, he in New Jersey. We saw each other once or twice a year and spoke on the phone weekly. And it had been going on for about six years. It began when I worked up the guts to call him uh, after I found his contact info on the internet. I'd met him some 30 years before when we were both students at Hope College. He approached me one day in the college coffee shop and he wondered if I was from Europe. Europe, me, I mean, I was like the dullest person from dull Grand Rapids. He picked me and he was gorgeous and exotic. He had traipsed around Europe for a couple of years and practically lived in New York City. He was urbane, avant-garde, and I was immediately besotted, smitten, and swept off my feet. And I joined the harem of girlfriends he acquired that year, (laughs) the only year he attended Hope. But I never forgot him. He was the heat that hatched me from my shell. He was the epitome of everything, hip, cool, and desirable, everything I wanted. Well, I dreamed about him over the years, literally and figuratively, wondered what had become of him, which prompted the reunion in 2008. It was that reunion that finally led to my divorce after years of misery. I had thought of Dee as unattainable, and the relationship was one I didn't expect. He was still handsome, still had the figure of a Greek god. He had never married and had shaped the perfect life for himself. In 70s jargon, he was self-actualized. He had no children and had neither parents, pets, nor plants to care for. (laughs) But he was willing to be with me. Again, I was smitten, besotted, and swept off my feet. It was so romantic at first. The phone calls that often awoke me in the middle of the night. He worked third shift and and was used to staying up all night, even on his nights off. He talked for hours, reading me his poetry, epic, meandering works, no haikus for him, (laughs) poems about past lovers and screeds about politics, family, and coworkers. Usually the theme was how they had done him wrong. He was always drunk when he called. 
In fact, he never called me when he was sober, but he wrote poetry. He read literature and was an autodidact for, for and had a, a passion for used books and obscure authors of previous centuries. Like both of my ex-husbands and every single man I've ever been in a relationship with, he was a substance abuser, but at least this one was literate. He was a reader and a writer. <laughs> what more could I expect? During this trip, we had ventured into New York City. I have friends in this city, but he never wanted to meet them. Even the friend who went to Hope with us, Dee claimed he had never, didn't remember him and had no interest in getting reacquainted. Now, I gladly met his friends, enjoyed it, but Dee reminded me that I was there to spend time with him. So that day, we wandered around Central Park and ate dinner in a diner across from Penn Station, uh, one that is attached to uh, the Hotel Pennsylvania, which is the one owned by the Moonies. It was Dee's choice. Now, I don't mind diners. In fact, I had lunch at this very place once before when it bustled with midtown movers and shakers. But at this early dinner hour, it was forsaken and seemed like the setting for a hopper painting. I was e eating a mediocre turkey burger in what some regard as the dining capital of the world. Now, I would have preferred someplace else, maybe any place else, but I was with the one I loved. And we were also in the city that never sleeps. I mean, there is lots of stuff to do in Manhattan. I mean, even a walk around the block can be exciting. But Dee was anxious to get back to his apartment in North Bergen, so we headed back on the PATH train. It was always about what he wanted. We had also traveled to the Jersey Shore on that trip. Uh, and the night we were there, I sat on the balcony of our hotel that overlooked the pool and the ocean. Dee lurked in the shadows of the room, downing beer. I encouraged him to join me outside, but he refused. I'm sure he didn't want to be exposed to the callow families playing, splashing, and squealing in the pool below. He had an aversion to the hoi polloi. He might see pot-bellied dads and overweight women offensive bodies of those who didn't take care of themselves according to his standards. They might be eating cookies and pretzels and drinking sodas, poisons. His diet was mostly herbs and vitamins. He had more supplements in his kitchen and fridge than he did food. He dosed me daily, but I was always hungry. <laughs> Meals were unpredictable. Would we really go out for dinner later as promised or should I fill up on a snack now? And I felt like such a glutton when I did eat. I mean, I did things like eat that bun that goes with a hamburger. <laughs> and one time, I even ordered a crawler when we made a coffee stop at uh, Dunkin' Donuts. That was also terrible food. His apartment uh, was by its very design dark and cave-like. But he kept the blinds closed and covered the windows with old paintings. He didn't want the intrusion of the tainted world filtering into his rarest, rarefied atmosphere of literature and thought. I wanted to bare the windows, open the blinds. At night, I wanted illumination, lamps instead of poking around with strategically priced, uh, placed flashlights. 
It was bad enough that I wanted to eat regular meals, but I was also part of that rabble that used 100-watt light bulbs. <laughs> now, one of our, we had also made a trip uh, to Philadelphia. We spent a day there, and at night in our suburban Philly uh, motel, I suffered a bout of atrial fibrillation. And that's a condition where my heart beats in a fast and irregular pattern. The doctors don't know what causes it, and it, there isn't really a cure, and it comes on without warning. It's very frightening when it happens, uh, but it eventually subsides, as it did this night. <clears throat> but D kept reminding me that he hadn't drunk anymore that night after we left the, the restaurant and bar where it had begun because he wanted to be for, there for me just in case. He expected gratitude for his abstention and sacrifice. So after this AFib incident in Philly, he needed to console himself and make up for a night of not drinking. That is how I came to find myself on the stoop of his apartment on the 4th of July, stretching to watch the tops of fireworks that were being set off somewhere to the west while well, Dee was passed out in his, his bedroom. So what if I can't see the entire firework? I can getting the general idea, and I kind of know the bottom looks like the top. <laughs> but, <laughs> and, but even if he was, were awake, we wouldn't have watched fireworks or celebrate in Independence Day. For one, not celebrating holidays and birthdays was the one thing of his long-abandoned Jehovah Witness upbringing that stuck. He had deep disdain for religion, and Jehovah Witnesses in particular. But it was a good excuse not to call on my birthday or ever buy me a gift at Christmas. But the fourth was also too conventional, too wholesome, right up there with apple pie, junk food, and baseball, sports. They were considered those a waste of time, sort of opiate for the unwashed. And even though I'm not a sports fan, that makes me mad. My dad was a loyal Tigers fan and died while watching a ball game, and he was a phenomenal person. So I didn't like that kind of disrespect. Back to the fireworks. Would I like to watch those? Yeah, yeah. But I kept trying to convince myself that being with the one I loved was enough. When he drove off from the airport after he dropped me off, there was a part of me that relished a return to the routine. I could go to bed when I wanted, get up when I wanted, revel in daylight, go out when I wanted, and eat what I wanted again. But I had no idea I'd never see him again as his car disappeared into the traffic. Never hear from him again after he said goodbye. I expected a call the next weekend. It didn't come, nor the weekend after that, nor after that. After about a month, I wrote him a letter, but I never received a response. I have no idea what happened. When did he decide to dump me? Was it during our trip after unsatisfying sex? Was it at lunch before he dropped me off at the airport when I wasn't sufficiently informed about the de Greek debt crisis that was raging at that moment? Or was it when he caught me glancing at an email on my phone a few days previous? He loathed electronics and the people who use them. Or maybe it was just time to ghost me. Six years excited many of his previous relationships, and I knew because he talked about them ad nauseum. 
I wondered if he now, now I wonder if he's added my name to the list of exes that he gushes about with whoever replaced me. My daughters were delighted about the demise of the relationship. <laughs> They're better judges of character than I am and never liked him. They thought him an arrogant and aloof narcissist. He was. I don't miss the long, drunk, drunken, repetitive conversations, and I don't miss the poetry either. I lied a little bit when I would lavish praise on it. And I don't even miss the sex because he wasn't as good as he thought he was. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to give a little as well as get. And I never got, but I gave plenty. Pretty well, too according to him. I think, it was, I think it was always the idea of him, the ideal of, the idea of him, because the ideal, because he wasn't ideal. Yeah, I'm better off without him. But I must admit, when I shop at Oriana or attend a bazaars that feature homemade soaps and scents, I sniff, <laughs> longing to find that aroma that, that fire ignited my fire. Next, on the presidential mountain range, Brad Lystra just needs to snuggle when he starts becoming hypothermic. So in 2007, I moved to Washington, D.C. I had uh, just gotten a job working in government relations, state and federal policy. And one of the things I realized is I, I realized really quickly that I was not cut out to live in Washington, D.C. And um, I might only be there for four or five, six years at most. Um, but while I was going to be there, I wanted to experience everything it had to offer and take it all in and get as much work done as I could, but just really see and live and breathe the city. That is the seat of the federal government. And one of the things I decided to do in early 2008 was I decided to well, I realized and was kind of looking at maps that there's a uh, mountain range um, in New Hampshire called the White Mountains. And in the White Mountains, there's um, a traverse of mountains called the Presidential Traverse. And the highest summit in the Presidential Traverse is Mount Washington, which is just kind of over, just a little over about, a little, about 6,200 feet. It's really not much of a mountain. But it's kind of a famous 18-mile trek you can do uh, through this peak in New Hampshire. And I decided that that was going to be kind of a DC experience for me. Because I, I, as I was sitting in my office in DC, I was like, well, all the president's mountains are over here. So in the presidential traverse, in order, I might miss a couple here, but it's Madison, Adams, Jefferson, Clay. In New Hampshire, they actually renamed Clay Reagan, but the federal government still calls it Clay. Mount Washington, which is the highest peak, and then Monroe, Franklin, Eisenhower, and Pierce. Um, Franklin, Ben Franklin got a mountain, even though he was never a president. <laughs> so sitting in my office, I was like, this has got to be an experience I need to have. Maybe it'll help me understand what I'm going through here in this town a little bit more, or maybe I'll see something in the mountains that are up there that will kind of teach me something, or this is just kind of like 
maybe a bit of a metaphor for what is going on uh, in, as I kind of experience uh, DC. So I plan a trip for March 6th uh, to do the 15, 18 mile traverse through the presidentials. And I convince a buddy of mine, Pierce, uh, to come with me on this trek. And we fly to Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, get a car, park at the trailhead, gather all our gear, and we start hiking up the mountain uh, towards Madison, which will be the first peak that we're going to do in this two-day trek. Now, I should tell you that the, the weather in March in the presidentials is historically terrible. Um, a lot of people who train for Everest or other mountains in the Himalaya will go and do a winter trek in the presidentials because every single storm in jet stream that comes across the United States, almost by the book, hits the presidential square on. So for example, the highest non-hurricane wind speeds ever recorded in the United States were on the summit of Mount Washington at 231 miles per hour. About during the winter time, once every three or once every four days, there will be consistent 100 mile per hour wind gusts in the presidentials. This is literally the worst weather on earth you, you could ever imagine. You combine a 100 mile per hour wind with winter temperatures of 10 degrees, and you're talking wind chills in negative 30, negative 40 terrain on a regular basis, over and over and over again, day after day after day. Um, for a 6,000-foot mountain, it's shockingly dangerous. And in fact, about 200 people have died on the presidentials, and that's almost the same number. It's not really an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, but that's about the same number of people who've died on Everest. So, I mean, the numbers are very similar. So we're going up this mountain, Pierce and I, and as we expect, the weather's terrible. It's foggy, it's raining, there's sleet, there's snow, and we're really kind of just getting, we're get, we have full conditions. And we get up to Adams, and we've probably gained about four or 5,000 feet. We're kind of achieving the crest of the ridge, and we start to have a full-on winter storm um, that's kind of around six or seven o'clock at night. And we're realizing that, well, not only is it getting late, but we can't go on, but some of the wind gusts that are starting to hit us are in excess of 70 miles per hour. The rain is coming in sideways. The sleet and the snow is coming at us from every possible angle. We almost have no visibility at all whatsoever. We have a tent, but we can't put up the tent because not only would the wind rip the tent out of our hands, but it would probably shred if we were sleeping in it or get blown over or slide us off, you know, the, the bit of mountain that we're on. We do have a shovel, so we decide we're going to have to dig a snow cave to get through this night up on the mountain. So in this rain, sleet, snow mix, Pierce and I takes, take turns shoveling out um, a little ice shelter um, on the side of the mountain. Probably takes us about an hour. We are sweating as we're doing it, which is kind of part, kind of defeats the purpose to some degree because we're getting wetter and wetter as, as it goes on. And eventually after an hour, we have, we have a, um, an ice shelter, a snow shelter, dug out into the side of the mountain, something that we can call th crawl through a little portal into and we'll be able to sleep in there for the night 
in the freezing cold. I get in there and I'm completely soaked and the temperature's starting to drop. It's probably 15, 20 degrees out and I feel as though I just got out of a shower. And we put up on, hop into our sleeping bags and we're gonna spend the night in these conditions as we have 80 mile per hour wind gusts out the door of our little snow shelter. I began to go into moderate state of hypothermia. My teeth are chattering like you'll never believe. I'm freezing cold. I've actually never been this cold in my entire life. I can't sleep a wink. Pierce is doing a little bit better. He somehow managed to stay a little drier during this rainstorm. And after about two hours of nonstop earth-rattling shivering, I turn to Pierce. I go, Pierce, I think we might need to share a sleeping bag. <laughs> See, this is something you can do in the mountains. <laughs> and this is something that friends of mine have done before. Um, I've had some mountaineering friends who got lost on a route and had to spend a night out when they weren't planning on it. And they literally slept in a puppy pile on the side of a mountain. Just in the, that body heat that you can get from somebody else can actually be a lifesaver when you're really cold. And that was, I've never had to do this before in my entire life, but I turned to Pierce and I'm like, Pierce, I think I might need that. And Pierce turns back to me, then he looks at me soaking wet, much colder than he is. He says, I don't think I'm ready for that yet. <laughs> and in my I didn't say this, but in my mind, I was like, Pierce, I'm not, no, I'm not asking you on a date. I'm not asking you to get married. Like, we're not going to go out to a romantic dinner. Like, I'm really cold. I didn't say any of that. What I did is I just kind of hunkered back down into my soaking wet sleeping bag and continued to shiver. A few more hours go by. We're probably approaching 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning now. And I turned around and I was like, we just need to move. We need to get out and start moving and build those build up that internal heat because like I, can't, I don't know how much longer I can take in this thing and he agrees and we crawl out we pack our bags and we begin the presidential traverse we are still in varying states of cloud cover and fog the rain and the snow has mostly died down but we're still getting wind gusts of about 80 miles per hour and we go by Madison we go by Adams it's around Jefferson that I, where Pierce and I are kind of going down the crest. He's about 50, 100 feet behind me. And I turn around and I notice Pierce is actually starting to kind of, gets a little disoriented and starts to kind of walk off the mountain the wrong way in the bad weather. And I know right away, like with the weather that we have and location we have, like just walking off the mountain the, the wrong direction would be, if not fatal, it could be a very, very bad couple days. But my first thought is, I'm like, that's the guy that didn't snuggle with me last night. <laughs> like, do I want to help him? But apparently forgiveness is a thing. <laughs> and, I, and I walk back to Pierce. 
and I kind of grab him like Pierce that's not the route like we're we're going this way and he's like I know I I got I got disoriented there for a second got confused I was like okay well let's let's stick together let's get through this we go by Jefferson we do Clay Reagan and we summit Washington the weather's still terrible and we decide after Washington that we just are going to the last few remaining presidents, Franklin, Eisenhower, and Pierce, we just want nothing to do with because that, <laughs> that would require us in our completely soaking wet gear to spend another night out in another snow cave in that weather. So we, we kind of bail. We've got about two-thirds of the presidential traverse done and we're exhausted and tired and, and went home from there. And, you know, it's those mountains... It's, it's funny, you can learn a lot from people when you're in a mountain. The ability to forgive, the ability to help others, or the ability to not help others uh, in some situations. But on this President's Day, I think it's important to remember like those mountains are there for a reason. Those mountains have been named that way for a reason. And there's a reason that they're so windy and they're so dangerous there's reasons so many people have died on the presidential traverse trying to make their way down that trail. Um, it's it's an important part of understanding what it is to work with the wilderness and be in the wilderness, but also to understand why those mountains would be given their name, uh, the presidentials. Thank you. <laughs>In the next story, all Heather Hudson wants is her first kiss, but she ends up instead with a comedy of errors. So my daughter and I just got cast in Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a total story of love craptually. And it reminded me of the last time I was on stage in a big production, which was Oklahoma when I was a junior in high school 25 years ago. And during that show, I was really like in love with the sheriff. And, and so we went on a couple of dates, and, but he didn't want to really like kiss me because he wasn't over his girlfriend and you know, he still had these feelings for her. And I was like, whatever, I need my full on first kiss and I need that to happen and I don't really care about you know, your past relationship. So this whole thing happened and I was just like you know what I'm 17 years old I'm ready I went to my friend who was playing Curly in the play and I was like Curly we're just gonna call him that um I need my first real kiss and um do you want to be the one to do it and he was like yeah I was like okay great so so we drove my parents live by um I'm from downstate Uh, I'll get I'll get my hand out it's right here Um, in Davison, and we lived really close to Holloway Reservoir, which is a man-made lake, so I grew up next to a brown lake. And so we parked there at the lake, and it was cool. There was, like, fog coming over the lake. And so I just left the um, lights on because I was like, this looks looks really cool. And then we're we're actually friends, so we're also just like, you ready? And we're like, yeah. And so... We start kissing, and it, and it was good, and it was funny, and, you know, like, he would do funny things, like, he blew all the air into my mouth to puff my cheeks out, you know, so it was, like, pretty ridiculous. But I also 
<laughs> I also had to pick my mom up from work that night. She worked at the hospital. It was about 20 minutes away. And it was getting close to the time when I needed to leave, and I had picked him up, so I had to have enough time to get him home. And so I go to start the car. Dead, right. So it is probably around 10 o'clock at night, or more around 9.30, because I had to pick my mom up at 10. And I was like, oh. And I look around, and there was actually a truck pulling a boat out. And I was like, we need to go ask him if he has any jumper cables and can come over here and jump the car. And he's like, yeah, you should do that. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, fine, I'll do everything. I got it. So I walk over there, and there's these three guys. They got the boat out, and they're standing by the truck. And I was like, hey, guys. And they're like, hi. They're like, your shirt's on backwards. And I was like, <laughs> that's what's funny about that is it no clothes were touched like and I still was like huh and so they lost it they just were like oh, we caught you making out at the boat ramp it's like whatever so I was like hey guys do you have jumper cables I need a jump obviously you guys know that and I oh gosh I couldn't I shouldn't even have said that and they were like no we don't have jumper cables and I was like what's the matter with you it's like 1993 and you own a truck and a boat and you don't have jumper cables that's ridiculous and I was like, okay, well, do you have a phone? And they're like, actually, we do. And I was like, what? So they have a car phone. So I'm like leaning into this truck. And mind you, Curly is way too far away to rescue me if they decide to take me. I'm like way over there by the car. So I get on the phone, and I'm standing there, and they're just standing there watching me. And I was like, um, dad? And they lost it. They were like, ah, she's making out, and now she's got to call her dad. And I was like, um, so th I'm at the boat ramp with Curly. You know, we're, we just wanted to check out the fog and whatever. And, um, and the car died. And I was like, and I don't have any cables. And this guy let me use his phone. And he was so angry. He's like, your brothers are asleep. And you're supposed to be go getting your mom. Now you're going to be late. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry about all that. Um, but he's like, I'll be right over. So he comes over. And brings the jumper cables, you know, parks the car, and Curly stands on the opposite side of the car of wherever my dad is. <laughs> it's like this little dance. And he won't like, he was like, uh, hey, Mr. Hudson, and, he, and my dad was just like, mm. <laughs> So he, he gets the car going, and he goes, you better hurry up and get your ma. And I was like, yeah, okay, dad, sorry. And Jason was like, mm. Oh, sorry, Curly, I said his name. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> sorry um so anyway so I get in I was like all right we have to go get my mom he's like no you have to take me home and I was like no that's gonna take an extra 30 minutes and I am already late and he's like I don't want to be in the car when you pick up your mom late and I was like mm, men so I was like okay fine so I took him home went and picked up my mom and she was like sitting outside on the curb just like seriously and she like had her mad face on and she gets in the car, and she's like, what took you so long? And I was like, oh, you're going to think this is funny. And she's like, I don't think so. Five minutes later, she couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> and so I did have another date with the sheriff. And I was like, you know, I've been like wanting you to be my first kiss, and instead Curly was. And he was just like, really? He's like, I'm sorry. And so then we like made out. But it was like in the driveway, and... So I was in the driveway on time for curfew, but I wasn't in the house on time because I was kissing in the driveway. And so I get inside, and my dad's like, sat in the 
driveway for long enough. I was like, mind your own business. He's like, you got cotton mouth now? And I was like, Dad, do you have to be at all my first kiss? <laughs> he was like, mm-hmm. So <laughs> we didn't actually have another date after that because I didn't need to, I guess. And <laughs> <laughs> I will say that he did eventually marry that girlfriend that was before me. But I, you know, I learned a lot from that. Like, if you want something, then just ask for it. And the things that you want aren't always the best things. Because I also learned that Curly was a much better kisser than the sheriff. <laughs> Thank you. Next, after far too many breakups with the same person, Janelle Bowers has to draw a line in the sand. So, um, my love life could be described as like, like I want you all to close your eyes and picture a fire at like a tire recycling factory. (laughs) Where in which the tires are my ex-lovers and the thing that binds them together is me, or in the case of the tire recycling factory is the fire itself, just spewing black smoke on everything within about a five mile radius. And it's really hard to pinpoint where this shit began, but it just sort of melts into this like black putrescence, right? know where the craptastic love began. It could have been in second grade where I like in a moment of bravery reached over and held Samantha's hand and she called me a lesbian and walked away. (laughs) She was right. Um, To be fair. Or when I kissed Ashley Hawkins on the back of the bus in fifth grade and got made fun of for being a redhead kisser. Or (laughs) when I was 13, my boyfriend got like killed. Like that happened too. Um, Or my my, like high school sweetheart that I met at 14 and I didn't really realize it wasn't that sweet for a 25 year old man to date a teenager. Um, It could have been my ex-wife whose name is Bliss. I wouldn't out people like that except for that she sort of deserves it. And also, (laughs) it's incredibly important because she left me for a woman named Joy. (laughs) That happened. It could have been my ex-husband who got a girlfriend when I was six months pregnant. It could have been that. But you know, when I met Nate, I thought, I thought this one was going to be different. And, and when I was writing this story, I don't know why. I don't know. But I did. And I, I met him uh, at the perfect time to meet a potential partner, which is when you're seven and a half months pregnant, right? <laughs> um, that seems like a great plan. Uh, so I was sitting in a coffee shop 
um, eating a piece of cheesecake, as one does when one's husband has just left one for their girlfriend. Um, and I was doing my taxes, minding my own business, being pregnant and miserable. Um, and this guy across from me is sitting there uh, reading a magazine. And he kept like smiling at me. And I was like, what the fuck? Does this dude know that I'm pregnant? Like, I'm really pregnant. And I'm not one of those, like, gracefully, you can't see that they're, like, I looked like I swallowed, an, like, a, it was like a toothpick and an orange. Like, it was really obvious. But he kept smiling at me, and he came over, and he, he was kind of handsome in this handle mustache sort of way. Um, and he came over, and he started talking to me. It was just, like, really casual and friendly and sincere. He had, the, he had a kind smile. And I'm like sort of, I, I have a soft spot for like kind eyes and a big nose. Like I just can't, I'm weak for it, right? So then at the end of the night when he gives me his card and says, you should call me sometime, I'm like, what the fuck? Does he, like we talked about how I'm pregnant. How is he asking me out? But then I like, stop. you know, it's a small town. I'm like, this guy's lived here for 40 whatever years. So I I asked everyone I knew if they knew him. And I found one guy, and he was like, he's the nicest person I've ever met. And I was like, all right, all right, I'll go out. I don't, he has an earring and like a handlebar mustache. I don't know what his deal is, but at least I won't be at home alone and pregnant with my husband out with his girlfriend. So um, we go out, and it was just really nice. Like, it was just easy and nice. And we sit down and five minutes into our date he looks at me and I he says you have really beautiful eyes and I said why don't you care that I'm pregnant <laughs> and he said I don't know I just I like little kids and I think you're pretty I don't know I don't know I don't I don't I don't know I don't care and we just had this really like easy way about us and we, we shared a lot of story, right? Like we, we had really similar upbringings and, and um, somewhere in between like him just being really gentle and, and soft but funny but not overwhelming and my like emotional, just having come out of this really bad marriage and I think the hormones of the end of pregnancy like set you up to fall in love with people, right? Like that's, they're literally, that's what you're supposed to do at the end of a pregnancy because you have to take care of this child that's going to be an entire pain in your ass. So like you fall, you have these hormones that make you fall in love. And I did, like hard. And then about three months after we started dating, um, he broke up with me and he said, you know, I, I went through this really broad breakup about a year and a half ago and I just, I've realized being with you that I'm just not over it yet. But I like had this faith that we were gonna be together. Like I could see us being old people together, right? And I went, okay, you know, and I was devastated, but I, I had this faith that he would come back. And then about six weeks later, he did. He said, I made a big mistake, I'm so sorry. Let's do this again. And I said, yes. And we were together again and it was great. And then about three months later, he said, you know, this person, I'm really just not over this person. And he broke up with me. And I held faith. And then about six weeks later, he came back and he said, I made a really huge mistake. I'm so sorry. 
And I went, I see a pattern. <laughs> but then about three months after that, he said, there was this person that I was with and I'm just really not over them yet. <laughs> and I went, eh, I'll give you six weeks and see what you say. And then he came back six weeks later. Um, and then three months after that, he broke up with me again. And I said, okay, this time you have to be done. You have to be done this time. No, no more of this. And he said, yes, I understand. We're done. We're, it's done. No more. And then about four months later, um, I actually like started to move the fuck on with my life. And so I looked all happy and shit. And he would see me out and be like, look at this glowing, happy person. I want some of that again. And so he came back to me and he said, you know, I made this huge mistake and I'm in love with you and I want a life with you and I want to marry you. And I said, okay, <laughs> and entirely waffled. And he moved in, and then there was a cancer scare. Like, we thought he had cancer for, like, three days, and it, that was terrifying. Um, no, really, we, like, thought he had terminal cancer for three days. It was this crazy thing. But that, like, cemented us together, you know? And we were together for about a year and a half, and it was good. It was really good, and it felt good. But after about six months, he stopped talking about marriage, and he started to grow a little bit distant. And then sometime in August of 2016, he got back on Facebook after years of being off of it from this breakup. And we're out on a date one day, and I say, so how's Facebook going for you? And he's like, ah, you know, it's fine. And I said, have you, you seen Kelly on Facebook? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I have, I have. Um, she got married. And I said, oh, well, how did that make you feel? And he goes, well, I guess it, I have to be okay with it. And I, it was like I got punched in the gut, right? I went, oh my God, he is never going to be as committed to this relationship as I am, ever. And so we didn't make any drastic decisions. We were both in pretty heavy therapy and um, we sort of slept like strangers in our bed for a couple of weeks, right? And I kept asking him like, do you wanna move to the other room? And he wouldn't tell me yes, and he wouldn't tell me yes. And then he was going camping with his children one day and um, for a weekend, and I decided, look, he wants to move, he needs space, but he just doesn't know how to ask for it. I knew him well enough at that point. And so I lovingly like combined my children's room into one room, and I, I moved him, and I set up the room beautifully in a way that he would feel really comfortable and I just, as I was moving as close I can remember, just like holding them and smelling them and just sobbing, these like deep, sad sobs and I n didn't want him to be surprised by it and so when he came home, I made sure to be home and I sat him down on the couch and I said, I love you and I want you to have the space that you need and he just, he fell apart and was like, I've, I've been doing this therapy and I have all this healing to do and I've been diagnosed with this attachment disorder and I can't do this work in a relationship but I, you're my best friend and I can't lose you. And I need your support but I, I don't wanna be with anybody else, that's not what this is about. And I said, of course, I love you, whatever you need. So a month and a half later, I introduced him to one of my colleagues um, for professional reasons and um, a couple weeks later, my, my stepfather had a stroke and I traveled to visit him and, and while I was gone, they started dating each other. And so I came home and then Trump was elected. Um, 
And then the day after Trump was elected, he sat down and told me I've started dating someone. And that led to all these conversations about, oh, wait, this actually wasn't about you not being in a relationship. This was about you not knowing how to break up with me again, right? And I fell apart. I just fell into emotional freefall. And what happened is that they got closer, but he was still living with me. And so he would be gone for a week at a time and then come home and I would completely lose it. I would just fall into these animal sobs and say, please just go, like, just leave. Just please just leave. I need you to leave. And he just kept not leaving. <laughs> so finally, in March of 2017, we broke up in August. In March, I finally said, if your stuff isn't out of my house by March 1st, it will be on the lawn. You have to go now. And by that time, I had started dating this woman, which could be a whole other loved crapshooly episode uh, <laughs> to add to the tire fire. Um, but what happened was is that I sort of leveled out, and I sort of started to stay with my grief, right? And he was gone, and so I was able to, to sit with it. And underneath all of that, turns out if you just ignore grief, it doesn't go away, guys. And underneath all of it, I found all this unresolved grief about somebody from a dozen years ago. And I realized, like, I just, I don't want to be with men <laughs> anymore. Um, and it was, like, the hardest bit of healing that I've had to do. But what I did was date myself for a year, right, and learn to be alone and sleep alone and integrate all those feelings into one place and one person. And this summer he called me and he said, um, Jenna and I are getting married. Um, and I said, thank you for telling me. And I was able to look at it objectively and realize that he just did, he did his due diligence and that it wasn't right and that it's okay and I'm able to actually look at him with some gratitude and say, like, thank you for leaving me, right? Thank you for leaving and allowing me to potentially find something that won't be crapshooly. And funny thing, uh, tonight, while I'm here, he's watching my children. Um, <laughs> and when I was leaving the house, he said, what's the theme tonight? And I said, it's love crapshooly. And he said, oh. <laughs> With a very knowing nod. Thank you. In the next story, Lisa Rosendahl is so smitten with the guy she calls Superman that she finds herself chasing his dreams instead of her own. Oh no, I jabbed Superman in the ribs of the fork. I guess I didn't know my own strength. When he lifted his shirt to expose his chest, a trickle of blood began to fall. Four tiny holes appeared. I was trying my best to flirt with this new busser. I'm not sure if I was, I'm not sure if I was starstruck because he looked like 
Clark Kent or because I long for a boyfriend. I was 24, living in Denver and putting myself through college. I had dated, I basically had it all, except for a love interest. I had dated some losers, a former waiter who had preferred drugs and another one that smelled like fish from his job at the grocery store. <laughs> I did, however, have a dependable network of gay friends who took me out and treated me like their queen. Other than that, my life was pretty boring. So that summer, when Paul walked into the restaurant where I waited tables, it rocked my world. I didn't think I had any shot with him. I was a bit insecure in those days, thus the fork trip trick, attempting to spear my prey and reel in a boyfriend. I'm not sure what got his attention, but one night, my phone rang, and I heard Paul's voice. My knees gave way, and I sat down, and we talked for hours. During the phone call, he strummed his guitar and serenaded me, which only fueled my infatuation. I was so immersed in the conversation that when he mentioned he had graduated from a Jesuit college, I just played it off like I knew what that was. <laughs> Later, I looked it up and realized that Paul's intelligence exceeded mine with a fancy college degree from some school out east. I told Paul that I was studying to be in video production and that someday I wanted to make documentary films. He, on the other hand, was going to go to Paris to further his education and become a college professor. I envisioned myself joining him and our love affair continuing overseas. It was a little far-fetched, but it didn't stop me from fantasizing. Sure, I wanted to make films, but why couldn't I do that alongside Paul? I could be his lowest lane. <laughs> my move from Michigan paled. My move from Michigan to Colorado paled in comparison to this upcoming adventure of his. When Paul showed up for our first date, he was dressed in a white undershirt, blue shorts, and Adidas tennis shoes. He had his guitar strapped to his back. Not really Superman, more like Clark Kent on his day off. We sat around my apartment and talked for hours, and he played his guitar and sang Ma Van Morrison love songs. After that night, I went out and bought all the Van Morrison cassettes I could find. <laughs> I was going to throw myself into this love affair, and I began saving my money to go and visit him in Paris. Paul had grown up in Denver, so he knew his way around. After work, we would venture out and walk around downtown, and other times we would have a picnic in the park. He took me to the art museum and a couple of poetry readings, exposing me to his kind of intellectual activities. I tried to keep up with all of his philosophies and stories, but sometimes I felt a little out of his league. I was so starstruck that I was willing to put on a good act so he could find me more appealing both physically and mentally. My idea of love and romance came from the videos I watched and I was desperate for a meaningful relationship. As summer was coming to an end, we decided to take a trip to Mount Evans. It was Labor Day weekend and we wanted to climb a mountain. So we drove up the winding road to the summit. It was a spectacular view and I was on cloud nine with my larger than life boyfriend beside me. When the time came for Paul to leave, I was sad but I knew I would be seeing him in a few short months. I had managed to save $1,000 and I couldn't wait to meet him there once we got, he got established. I lived for the moment when I would land in Paris and go running into his arms. My daydreaming got the best of me, but it kept me going for a while. I heard from Paul late one evening and something in his voice was different. He was distant. My heart sank a little. 
I tried to sound upbeat. I told him what he was missing at work and how my college semester was going. It was very apparent that I was still the one holding on to the summer fling. In the weeks that followed, I desperately tried to get a hold of him. But there was no cell phone calling, Facebook stalking, or Instagram hawking, only landlines, overseas operators, and an ocean between us. He had moved to a different world, and I was left with my fading memories and a broken heart. Months dragged by, and I never heard from Paul again. As my heart started to mend, it began, it, it began to dawn on me that this had not been a true love, more like a three-month infatuation. I'd been swept away by Superman. It had been a summer romance like one from the movies. I realized Paul was not the guy for me. I was just in love with the adventure of his life. I started to feel better about myself because I was on my own journey and now I was $1,000 richer. <laughs> I ended up taking that money and buying my first car. If I couldn't travel to Europe, I was gonna use my little Honda Civic to take me to faraway places. <laughs> In the last story of the evening, I find out that the universe is not the dating guru it's all cracked up to be. Okay, so I dabbled in the serial monogamy arts for about 15 years, and uh, when a very emotionally exhausting relationship ended in 2008, I needed a break. And so I just wanted to get to know who I am. Like, who is Karen when she's not half of a couple? And so after a very deliberate few years off, I was so ready to get back in. But I was having a really hard time finding dates. I, I was relatively new to Traverse still. Uh, I didn't know that many people. I work from home. Um, I joined some dating sites, but you know, I was mostly connecting with the uh, pathologically unserious, and so uh, mostly I was accumulating very boring pen pals. And um, so I widened my geographical net to include Ann Arbor and Grand Rapids and Chicago, and that <laughs> didn't really <laughs> work too well either. I, I think that the success of that can best be summed up uh, by the thing that a guy who lives in Holland said to me. I don't date girls who live more than 15 miles from my house. Okay, <laughs> buddy. <laughs> so, um, so I just started trying every dating strategy that was recommended to me, no matter how odd it was, no matter how skeptical I was. Like, for instance, I was told that if you bury a statue of St. Anthony upside down in your yard, you will find love. Now that attempt for me was doomed from the start because I lived in an apartment complex at the time and I buried little Anthony upside down in my couch. <laughs> so I was also told that you should set your intentions for dating into the universe. Make it clear exactly who you're looking for. Be specific. I'm looking for a nice guy. Well, that's not good enough. The universe needs you to tell it who a nice guy is to you so that there's no mistaking who should be sent to you. Dear universe, 
this is what I'm looking for in a partner. Oh yeah, I typed it. <laughs> I included a very detailed bulleted list. <laughs> and for good measure, because it just seemed so appropriate, I put that list in a sparkly purple box. So nothing happened right away. But uh, in uh, November 2011, there he was, like plucked from the, ma uh, from the bulleted list headlines. It's so perfect, this match profile in Grand Rapids. So he didn't respond right away to the first message that I sent. But when he did respond, <laughs> I was jumping up and down and shrieking. And this is when I discovered that somewhere within this full-grown woman lies dormant a very excitable preteen girl. <laughs> so <laughs> when we did finally start talking, uh, we were just communicating furiously. We started with match messages, and then we moved on to email, and then texts, and then phone calls. Oh my gosh, he was so smart and so funny. And he was my age, which in my dating history is practically unheard of. Uh, he had a smooth jazz voice and a face like Robert Downey Jr. And he told me, well, people call me DJ, but if you want, you can call me by my name, which is Davy Jones. Are you kidding me? <laughs> of course I want to call you Davy Jones. <laughs> no question, dude. So Davy Jones, unlike the monologuers from online dating, was very interested in getting to know me. He asked me so many questions. He even asked if he could see samples of my published work, which is something that romantic, romantic partners have never asked me for this before. I mean, we were just, <laughs> you know, he wanted to see me for all who I was, and he wanted to show me all who he was. Part of who he was was a frustrated, slightly bitter uh, divorcee with two uh, teenage, uh, two teenagers. Uh, but, you know, through all this real life stuff, we were just cracking each other up constantly. We would always uh, just like send each other these texts with what we called small but unusual things, where it's like those little things that you see that interrupt your day to day that are so awesome that you wish someone else had seen them with you. And so in a way, like from a distance, we were kind of witnessing each other's life. And we talked every day, and I swooned every day. So the first time we actually met in person, um, I was on my way to Chicago. And since I would be passing through Grand Rapids, we said, well, why don't we meet for lunch? It was the end of, De uh, the end of December 2011. And I got to the restaurant early, and so I was lurking in my car in the parking lot, just watching all these elderly gentlemen walk into the restaurant. And I'm sitting there thinking, all right, which one of these fuckers is my catfish? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I actually had a reason to think he was full of it, but he was so custom created for me that there was no way that he was really real. But then, noon on the nose, there he was, exactly who he said he was, walking through the parking lot in a long wool overcoat. <laughs> Thank you, universe. So I was so smitten during lunch. I just, I mean, our, we, our conversation had that pow, pow, pow rhythm and our 
chemicals just met in the middle of the table and danced the tango. And if he hadn't had to go back to work, we probably would have been there for hours. But when I was about five miles outside of Grand Rapids, he sent me a text and said, I'd like to see you again when you're headed back up. And I was a terrible friend and family member that whole time I was out of town with half my head just hovering over Grand Rapids. And he was blowing up my phone with those small but unusual things and wonderful fun facts about himself and wonderful words about how much he was into me. Okay, no, seriously, universe, you're done good. <laughs> and I did see him on my way back uh, when I was passing through Grand Rapids on my way to Chicago. And I saw him many other times during those uh, months. Every time we met up, it was a marathon date because we were trying to just enjoy each other as much as possible before we had to go on with our respective real lives. And so, I mean, the way I talked about him, my friends were, even though I never said anything about marriage, my friends were literally preemptively telling, them, telling me their needs for a bridesmaid's dress should I need them <laughs> in that capacity down the line. So uh, I left our date on February 13th so excited for the next date, but there never was a next date. There was never a next anything. And so began that really disorienting process of trying to figure out, there was never a misunderstanding, there was never an argument, there was never anything obvious at all. Why would he just stop talking without a word? Like, how does that happen? I'd never been ghosted before. Uh, universe, what the shit is this? So I dissected the crap out of all of it, just trying to figure out what happened. And I had like all these minor thoughts. Like there was one time where he did something in bed that I didn't really care for all that much and I made a face and then I saw that he saw me make that face, which I mean, maybe that's a thing, but it didn't seem to me like a fireable offense. So I sent him a text, sent him a couple texts, hung up on voicemail a couple times, and left one voicemail. I had no idea what happened. I looked at his match profile just to see, like, has he been going online? We were free Facebook friends, so I would look at his profile there to see, like, is there anything that he put there? that like, could explain to me what's going on. I even Googled his name, his town, and the make and model of his car, just in the unlikely event that like he was literally a ghost now. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, my last attempt at communication was an email where I was very stoic. I was very matter-of-fact. It was pretty much just, where'd you go? What happened? And I used as the subject line of that email radio silence, and radio silence was exactly the response that I got. But it was in that silence that I realized something. You know, I was so charmed by him, and I was so prematurely celebrating the fact that the universe cared so deeply about my romantic happiness that, I mean, not really, but, <laughs> um, you know, I missed, I had totally blown off two very noteworthy things that he had said, both on our first date. One of them was, you know, 
I'm not really sure about you as a romantic partner because you know, you've never been married and you don't have kids and you're 40. You're like the reddest of red flags. And he also said to me, <laughs> and I don't know how I missed this one, uh, when I get bored of women, I broom them. And by that, he meant I just sweep them away. So uh, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by the ghosting, but I just wasn't emotionally prepared to accept that Davy Jones was actually a dick. After a couple weeks, though, it was clear that I would have to accept that this is just who he is and this is just how it ends. But being ghosted by someone who you think you're actually happily dating is so confusing and it's really hard to just be like, oh well. Yeah, and at the end of the month, I had to go to Chicago for work. And so I had to pass those same highways that I had taken to get to him in all those months before. And I was so irritated because I knew it would be irresistible to relitigate all of it, and I didn't want to. So as I got near Grand Rapids, I just turned the music way up. And I was just like singing at top volume. And it was when I had just passed Grand Rapids, and Tonight by Fun came on, and I was scream singing and like fist drumming my steering wheel, and it all just let loose. And okay, sure, so hysterical crying on the highway is probably not a tenet of safety first, <laughs> but I just needed to get all that cry, snot, and pain out of me. And I, that night, February 28th, I went to bed in my hotel room, so sad and so angry. But when I woke up on leap day, I felt like something had flipped in the night. I did kind of a roll call on all my emotions. And I just, I felt different. And so I said it out loud to the universe. You know what? Fuck it. He broke my heart. Davy Jones is dead to me. <laughs> oh, just you wait. <laughs> so I spent that day at my client's office by myself in this archives room, and I was like tucked away. It was quiet. It was dusty. It was such a perfect place for getting lost in thought. And so every time I could feel my thoughts kind of start to drift toward, you know, are you sure you don't want to relitigate Davy Jones? Um, I would pull out my phone and just you know, look at Facebook or look at the news headlines so that I could interact with the world beyond. And it was in about mid-afternoon that a new headline appeared that was dominating the news. Davy Jones, the musician, died of a heart attack that day. <laughs> and so, <laughs> This is where my relationship with the universe as a dating coach ended. <laughs> because the one time the universe actually listened to the exact words coming out of my mouth, I accidentally kill a monkey. <laughs> Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. 
Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and our MC for the evening, Crystal Frost. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in March, where our theme is Lie Like a Rug. Thanks for listening. Thank you.